Welcome to Afterthoughts, everybody. This is the podcast where we watch a movie and then we share our thoughts afterwards. Uh, I am your host, John Garcia. Joining me on this episode is Ryan King. Hey, how's it going? I just finished uh, my big bowl of goblin cheddar. Uh, how was that, by the way? It looks pretty gross in the yeah. commercial. After the uh, goblin barfed it all up on me, yeah, that was a little bit too much, but it is the best. It's got 60% more cheddar than the leading brand. Yeah. Uh, and that other voice that you hear, the man who himself exudes a cosmic darkness, is uh, oh. Michael Dixon. Wow, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me, John. Um <laughs> Yeah, I am uh, just sitting here in my whitey tidies, uh, drinking three quarters of a bottle of vodka, getting ready to go. And uh, uh, unfortunately, our guest star, uh, Eric Estrada from Chips, could not make it tonight. <laughs> um, but we will push on, folks, nevertheless. Uh, yeah, in this episode, we are talking about Mandy. Hell yeah, we are. You're a special one, Mandy. I, too, am a special one. Let us be so very special together. So what you gonna do with that thing? We're going hunting. So what you hunting? It's crazy evil! You're so in love. I'll show you love. Oh, man. I loved you. Ah! Ah! the cosmic darkness. It glowed from within. Strange and eternal. Ah! Hell yeah. Let's have Ryan now tell us why it's not a horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Mandy's directed by Panos Cosmatos, which I always forget his name and get it mixed up and think that he's called like Cosmos something something. You know, that Greek guy that sounds like he's a celestial body. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And it is a pretty simple story. Panos um, is on record saying that he really doesn't care as much about story so much as how a story is told. And this movie definitely embodies Mm -hmm. that. Um, It's a story of uh, Nicolas Cage, whose character is is called Red, um, and his girlfriend, Mandy. And Mandy is killed by some cultists. Oops, spoilers. Sorry, everybody. Uh, So Red goes on this revenge quest to kill everybody who killed Mandy. Um, And that's pretty much the entire story. The uh, where everything gets interesting is that the entire movie has this texture and atmosphere about it that is just mesmerizing. Um, it's what I assume doing acid could be, um, it, it, on some level, mm-hmm. and it's also like if you're a fan of like heavy metal and heavy metal magazine and like anything that's kind of metal, every 10 minutes there's like album art basically on rock screen. and roll me when I'm dead, some sweet, some yeah. sweet shit, uh, showing on screen. Um, and I picked this because, uh, you know, this, this is our spooky season. Um, Mandy has a lot of qualities about it that are spooky. I wouldn't say that it's a horror movie, but uh, it definitely has horrifying things. Very horrifying I mean, there's things. something about 
a, a gang um, of bikers who just drink jars full of acid um, and wear like leather studs and you can't see their faces. And one of them has like a sheath sword that he wears on his dick. Uh, like, like all of these things just come together and it's just nightmare fuel. Um, but it's perpetuated by like uh, all of the, the Nicholas Cage's journey into madness basically. And he just keeps discovering things that are more haunting and disturbing as they go. So I figured, Hey, you know, we already talked about Texas chainsaw massacre and we, we roughly alluded to uh, chainsaw fights. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ryan should see another movie that has chainsaw fights in it. Yeah. No, um, two but chainsaw also fights. <laughs> it's just, it's just a fucking weird wild time. And uh, I think it fits really well in the spooky season with the score and Hell the yeah. visuals and like, Everything about it's so cool. Um, well, that's that's kind of like my rough feelings on it. Uh, I'll kick things over to uh, Ryan because this is your first time watching Mandy. I'd love to hear what you think about it. Was this one weird enough for you, Ryan? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Ryan. this was weird enough for me for sure. <laughs> <laughs> if, I had a, if I had a dime for every time I saw a chainsaw fight in a movie, I, I'd have two dimes, which is you know, it's a, it's a weird coincidence, and it's weird that both times had sexual undertones to them. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this was a, this is a trip. This is like an unspoilable movie. Like you gave yeah. exactly what happened in the movie and it doesn't matter. Like you, that, that is what the movie is, but there's so much more of just like exactly how it's presented that it, I mean, the score, the atmosphere, the visuals, like everything is dialed up. Um, so yeah, no, I, I really dug it. I enjoyed it. It, it definitely is a trip. There were, there were, there's so many parts of like other movies that we watched that were kind of like cracking me up how they were coming together. Cause honestly the conversations they have at the beginning of the movie were giving me like hour of the wolf, uh, where they're just talking about weird shit in bed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Except it felt slightly more realistic than the hour of the wolf, which is my complaint. Like there. the Starling conversation. Yeah. Like the Starling conversation and the like, what's your favorite planet or whatever. Yeah. Uh, my favorite planet is Panos. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, it, it is almost like a reverse slasher. That was kind of the feeling I was having because there's this like rejection of the central guy and that's why he kills the girl, which is kind of the slashers do have that like undertone of the killer and something about, you know, sex of the girls that they often kill or whatever. So it's like kind of there where it's reversed, where we see it from the other like vantage point, And then that causes this slasher esque trail of destruction, except it's somebody else coming for our original slasher, like kind of the other way around. Um, so yeah, I think it, it vaguely fits. Um, and I think it, I had to go back and watch a chunk like that. This, as much as it sounds like this is straightforward and ridiculous violence, which it is, after I'd watched the whole thing, I'm like, great, now I need to go back to the first, like, 15 minutes, and now I can contextualize that and and kind of put it back together um, for something that is seemingly just violence, the fact that it kind of has this undertone of themes. It's, it would be easy to say, like, it's David Lynch kind of but it's not it's a different vibe though yeah it's a different vibe but it is that sort of like broad stroke almost surrealistic feelings but it's not <laughs> lynch it's kind of hard to describe it because i'm almost like that feels like the next ish closest thing to this but they're still really far apart like this is just its own 
new thing. It makes me super interested to go watch uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow mm-hmm. um, now because I'm like, oh, crap, I want to see that too, um, that crazy trip. So yeah, I definitely want to dig into the themes. Um, Darla did not watch it because uh, we, we only had time for like one movie watching this week together and we watched something else because I knew she wouldn't have liked this and watching <laughs> it, she would not have liked this. As absolutely, it would have, it have been no. <laughs> it's too much. Um, yeah, but cool, Dixon, you know, what's your... Yeah, um, I also watched this by myself this week. Uh, I had it sitting on the table. And my girlfriend was like, "What's that?" I was like, "No, you're not gonna. <laughs> That's not gonna work." <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, this is so. I've seen Mandy several times now. This is probably my fifth or sixth watch of of Mandy, and I saw it when it came out in theaters in 2008. And I love Nick Cage. I'm sorry, 2018, 2008. Wow. Time traveler. 2018. uh, And, you know, I love Nick Cage. And I had heard that he was in this movie that was actually good. This like, you know, trippy midnight movie. And it was, you know, kind of the Cage renaissance. Him coming back out of just doing terrible schlock and actually starting to do, um, you know, some higher like art stuff. And so I was pretty pumped about it. I saw it at like an 11 p.m. screening. It, it only was out for like a weekend or two. I think Draft House was the only place that was playing it. And really liked it when I first saw it, but like didn't like really fall in love with it until the second watch. I watched it again a couple of years later and I was like, why did I not like this more the first time I watched it? Like I really liked it, but I had it as like, I think on my year-end ranking list for 2018, I had it as like the 37th best movie out of like 200 that I watched. And I was like, it was was like, I liked it, but I was like, oh, this is way better than that. This is like an A-level movie. I think this thing is just so perfect in the way that it's constructed. And it's, you know, the plot is what it is. Um, It's like, you know, we, we talk about sometimes in this podcast, well, it's hard to watch like action or revenge movies after you've seen John Wick. Like, this is how you fucking do it if you want to make something interesting that is not just that same type of revenge action movie over and over again. Like, it is so much more about the vibes and the mood than it is anything else. And it, the cinematography is just gorgeous. Um, this is Benjamin Loeb's kind of first movie that he shot that got him like a lot of notoriety, and he's gone on to do bigger films since then. Um, he's actually doing Cage's movie that's coming out in a couple months where he's like appearing in people's dreams. I'm super pumped to, to, to see oh, that dream yeah, scenario. That cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, th- this has such a unique visual aesthetic to it that is unlike anything that I've seen before. There's these like beautiful, deep neon reds throughout the movie, sometimes kind of in weird trippy scenes. Other times they're just the clouds or this neon red for some reason. It's just, it looks so cool and it's often contrasted with like a deep midnight blue and those colors just work so well together throughout this movie creating this really strange tone where you have this brightness and this darkness kind of fused together throughout the film um the score is incredible you have this you know at times kind of chill electronic score to kind of set the mood around red and mandy and their relationship and then it you know kind of gets crazier at parts and you have like heavy metal sequences and but it all flows together really well it doesn't feel jarring as it switches between these tones um the editing is is just fucking great like this the way it's all stitched together is is absolutely beautiful it almost feels like a music video at parts um and it's just a really really fun watch um Nicholas Cage is just incredible in this. I think, um, you know, originally uh, they had wanted him to be the cult leader because, like, 
of course, who wouldn't want Nicolas Cage to play a cult leader in their movie? <laughs> and he had said, no, I'm not really interested in doing that, but I would like to play this, you know, the main character of Red. And then they were like, oh, okay, we'll think about it. And then a couple weeks later, they're like, what the fuck are we doing? We got to call Nicolas Cage and get him in our movie. Yeah. And like, he's just so good in the lead role. Like, obviously, I would have loved to see him, see him in the cult leader role, but he's so fucking good in the lead role and just brings this raw emotion to that role that I think works really well. You know, like... Ethan Hawke said a few years ago about Nicolas Cage that Cage was the first actor to bring something new to the form since Marlon Brando. And that's a bold thing to say. I think that's a pretty incredible compliment. But like, you know, just the way that Cage is able to kind of go like pull emotion out of the depths of him from places that were like you wouldn't expect it to to come like he's he's done things that actors have haven't really done before him to the degree that he's done it and um i think that you know if you take some of these clips out of context of cage kind of losing his shit and you put him in like a youtube compilation of cage freakout scenes then it's funny right but like if you watch it in context of the movie it makes perfect sense for like the emotions that this character is going through and like of course he's going to be losing his shit because of what because of what is going on around him um and Andrea Riseborough is always great and she always picks really interesting movies whenever I see her in something in a trailer I'm like oh I should I should check that out it's probably worth watching if Andrea Riseborough has decided to do it and she and she always just does such great work but um yeah I, I think this movie is pretty pretty fucking awesome yeah and I just want to say this movie I think it's like one of the first um cage films that like started to teach me to appreciate cage a lot more than I did before. I took, oh, yeah. I took cage for granted everybody. And I'm sorry. Um, I'll <laughs> you say, learned your lesson. <laughs> I'll say however many, uh, prayers to cages shrine as possible to make penance for it. Go to um, his above ground grave. in New yeah, Orleans. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Say 10, our fathers, our father being <laughs> Nicholas cage. <laughs> and then I'll say the alphabet as well. <laughs> Just, you know, for good measure. Um, a, B. <laughs> Uh, but I, I, being in the middle of Schlocktober right now and watching Mandy, having seen so many other actors, um, quote unquote, swing for the fences of what they mm -hmm. think acting is, I now understand that Cage has a full grasp on exactly what acting is and that it's more so like audience reaction to his performances where they make those freak out compilations and that kind of stuff that ends up being like the oh, it's funny because he's overacting in my imagination. He's reacting mm -hmm. a way that I would never act. And like, that's not purely what acting is. And you can't like write that off as yeah. being, you know. It's like, well, has your girlfriend ever been burned alive in front of you by weird cultists? <laughs> yeah. Uh, has your favorite shirt ever been torn by a biker who's high on ass? <laughs> my shirt. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Um, and it just like each time I watch a, a cage movie now, I have like this deeper appreciation where I'm looking for it. I was talking to somebody about it the other day and it was just like cage is in bad movies, but what he does in those movies can be genuinely interesting. Oh, and yeah, that's absolutely. really cool to see. Uh, and Mandy is, is obviously one where he gets to go full force several times. And, uh, it just seems like a fucking great day to be on set. Like every day, probably I'm sure oh, people yeah. felt that power. Um, but yeah, that's that's kind of like my note on it. Uh, just hey, y'all, if you're if you're over there writing Cage off because you think he acts funky because or you're, this isn't how I would act or something, that's not the point of it. That's not what Cage is trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like he's never badly acting or necessarily overacting. Like I do always feel like Cage is that character, and that character might be strange, 
Mm-hmm. But you're like, no, it, it is fully realized. Like, I kind of feel the same thing with Crispin Glover, where I'm like, oh, he's come up with someone and he is that person in that world. It's weird, but it's like a real person. It's a real thing. It just is a little over the top because that's that person, not because they're like going mm-hmm. too far. It's not, and, then, and like, yeah, you can pull those things out, but it's not like you walk away from it being like Neil Breen. Yeah. Where like, he just does not get. <laughs> you know how to act and he thinks he's actually doing it or better than everything or whatever i'm like no he does know what he's doing it's just something and yeah it is just completely different it is something different yeah and typically i think when he is overacting and it doesn't land it's because he's in a bad movie and he's just like trying to do something interesting to like it's like he can tell that he is in something bad and he's just like fuck it i gotta like i gotta what make something yeah. good happen here to like salvage like and it's like a lot of times i think his overacting is and, and again it's not necessarily overacting but it's him trying to figure out his character and and trying to do interesting things and like that may not be every take that he's doing like that but those are the ones that get put in to the final cut of the movie so um yeah i mean i I think it's it's always fascinating to see him at work and trying to bring interesting interesting things into the characters that he's playing yeah and Uh, now he's out of debt so he doesn't have to do um, it, you know, Willy's uh, Wonderland, Wonderland. Willy's Wonderland and, uh, um, <laughs> the fifth national treasure. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, when he gets enough money to fund his own thing, oh, like yeah. that's where I, that's the cage I want to see. I'm like, when he has finally got enough money that he's producing his own thing that he wants to do and where he's Dracula or he's Superman mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Like, I really want to see that. Yeah, old I was, Superman. Love to see it. Yep. I was, uh, yeah, was it like this? This movie was produced, or one of the producers on it was Elijah Wood, mm. and um, Elijah Wood talked about how like much he loved working with Cage, and that was kind of what he thought about trying to cast Cage. He was like, I can try to help, and I, I want more of that. Like, I want Ethan Hawke to try to bring Cage in on things, and like, yeah. just seems like he has a really good net of actors who respect him, and I just see nothing but opportunity for him to continue to do his work, and that makes me happy. Yeah, um, definitely. Well, Ryan, you said you uh, you wanted to talk about the themes of Mandy. Um, I would love to know, uh, in particular, if you have any specific themes that you want to go over, or like just had a general broad brushstroke for it. Yeah, I think that it does feel like there's kind of a central-ish theme here that kind of gets like on the nose. The start of the movie has uh, Reagan giving an address on the radio, which Mm -hmm. Red turns off like partway through Mm -hmm. sort of like this rejection of it. Red and Mandy live like much further out than everybody. They're very much out in nature. It's like they can see the stars, which is bullshit even in the eighties, but still Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) like they're far enough out from society that they can, you know, don't have light pollution supposedly. Um, They sleep in a glass bedroom so they can see the stars at night. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They only have Um, blue lights. (laughs) You you get a sense of their troubled past. Like each of them has these ghosts of uh, whether it's like Red's alcoholism, maybe a history of violence before. uh, Mandy's obviously bad upbringing situation that she talks about. Uh, It's unclear if that's a scar she's had forever or a scar she got at some point right so kind of like those they're out there like trying to be be present like be there with everyone and then we have it completely this uh cult that absolutely like lets these drugs run wild and this person who thinks he can like control all of them and have all of them 
and that he has some higher calling, right? They, they, it, it's, it's somebody says at one point, find. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, when when Red goes to get the weapon, his his friend is like, "Oh yeah, they used to just like run drugs, and then they got really bad trip, and then it's just been like this since then, right? They're just like crazy." So sort of this like, and the fact that this and uh, Beyond the Black Rainbow are set in 1983 specifically, not just the 80s, mm-hmm. but 1983 specifically, there definitely is this theme of like the switch to conservatism that happened in the 80s, but also this throwback to the 60s, like psychedelics and new age mumbo jumbo kind of stuff that here is presented as like, nah, it's just completely fucking high and they're doing stupid shit. Like that's not too much, but also they're rejecting the conservative like answer to that of like both of them are like really bad things. Like that seems to be one like strong theme that I, that I saw. Yeah. That's interesting. I actually watched beyond the black rainbow today and I had never seen it before. And yeah, it's also said in 1983, there is also a Reagan news clip in it. And like, it has a similar color palette to Mandy, not quite as extreme. Um, it's weird as fuck. It's very good. It's not as good as Mandy. I, I don't think, but um, yeah, it's definitely interesting to to watch for sure. So if you if you like Mandy, you should check it out. Yeah, the the and to kind of build on like that cult, like every there are basically just two gangs in this, two like cults you can think of them as, which is the Children of the Dawn, um, and that's Jeremiah and his flock, uh, who are all a bunch of um, hippies gone bad, very Manson family vibes coming mm-hmm. from them yeah um even even like to the point where jeremiah has his own song similar to like how manson had his own song uh, always is always forever and like he just believed that he was you know the, the chosen one um and then you have the biker gang uh of like semi like half demon half human acid tripping that seem indestructible in some scenes and very easy to kill in others man maybe that acid's like laced with pcp i have no idea but those bikers just will not go down Mm -hmm. like the fact that they still deliver lines when one of them's on fire and his head gets chopped off like (laughs) (laughs) um but like both of those kind of being these fanatic like these elements of fanaticism and taking it to an extreme and then tying in like the the reagan broadcast report there is that like who people seeking like somebody to follow and something to do and red really derives a lot of his purpose not not just from like mandy's existence but from like his relationship with mandy his like health and when we talked about like sound of metal um there's kind of that recovering addict aspect to it where I feel like th- this couple was a lot more solid. They knew exactly what they had and they were in a healthy relationship. They weren't like codependent to the point where like losing Mandy would have done that to him if she had left him in some other context. But here she's like stripped away and that just drives him not to join, but to like exterminate and extinguish these extremist yeah. groups instead. Um, and it, it really seems like they live counter to both sides of like the baby boomer world like they're not into this and and definitely i'm like it's presented this counterculture is presented like yeah children of the new dawn is exactly the kind of like bullshit name of like the hippie (laughs) groups or something right and then what are are they called black axes well i'm forgetting now i don't Um, remember who cares but yeah like like a hell's angels group right that's like oh they live outside society the hell's angels uh and this is 
probably what we think of Hell's Angels today. <laughs> we probably yeah. think of them more like this movie. But certainly back in the like 60s, there was somewhat of a glorification of that biker that lives out beyond the rules. Have like Easy Rider um, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking like, yeah, Easy Rider, like uh, Hunter S. Thompson, right? Writing about mm-hmm. like living with them or whatever. Not that Thompson's works made them come off well, but <laughs> still. Yeah. Um, and then this like rejection of the the Reagan too. Like it's like, all right, I can, both of them. Which I, I, it's not fully, uh, this is what I thought was kind of interesting is I'm like, the cult isn't presented as like fully new age counterculture because it they, all the cross ideology and the fact that they talk about God and all those pieces, um, which makes it slightly more David Koresh, it's slightly less Manson, but it's mm-hmm. kind of like a merging of those two um, was interesting to me because I'm like, it wasn't like this was a new age that was a rejection of all of those things. It was also religious, which you would think of with Reagan. So I'm like, it's kind of all of it's all melded together and sort of one like, no, none of it's right. Yeah, and it's kind of summed up, um, Cage says towards the end, when he's he's standing over Jeremiah, um, where he just says, like, the psychotic drowns where the mystic swims, and just kind of summing up that, like, these cults, these movements that, like, will wield uh, religion, spiritualism, uh, like, any other kind of self-discovery tool that's, like, a philosophical device to gain more power over people, um, eventually they like crumble and they fall. And it's interesting to watch because uh, one thing that I thought about this time around was it really does a good job um, for the first half of Bandy building up the mystique around the children of the new dawn and the mystique around the bikers. And then it does an excellent job of having red just go through and completely prove that they are mortals who can die and that they are also like, uh, I, I thought about um, thinking like Stephen King's it. There's a line that's like nothing like a little fear to make a paper man crumble. Like it's that kind of humbling of these people who think that they're above the law. They're outside of these like guides or that they're, you know, superior to others in some way can always be brought back down to a level that equalizes them. Um, and you see it with Jeremiah, like freaking out and having panic attacks. And he's like the first time that you see him, he's so cool and confident and he's very much in control yelling at his followers and like berating them and being a dick. And then he'll turn to a mirror and start crying into it and asking, tell me what to do. Tell me what to do. I just don't know what to do. And, um, yeah, it's, it's wild to see that go through. It felt like, um, like this merging of mythology and at the same time, sort of deconstructing mythology. Uh, that, that was kind of the vibe I got from it this time around. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and I think like, you know, Ryan, you're talking about the, the main culture and the counterculture kind of clashing against each other and, and the idea that both of them suck. And I, I think the movie is also saying that like, if you believe that both of them suck, there's not really a place in society for you to go. You know, like you're kind of stuck in this limbo between both worlds of accepting the mainstream and and not accepting some of the major forces against the mainstream and you're kind of like, you know, disliked by all sides and, and have a hard time like finding peace and a a place to fit in in society. Yeah. Red says, you know, we should, maybe we should move. Maybe we should leave. Yeah. Mandy's like, where would we go? I like this place. And he's just like, "I, I don't know. Like there's just no, no other alternative to them living out there. Yeah, they come out and find you, even if you're trying not right. to mess with them or not to do anything. They come find you. 
And then, yeah, apparently the only solution is to go murder all of them, but that's not like a great solution either. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. I should say the only solution is to forge yourself an axe, folks, and that axe <laughs> has to be badass. <laughs> where do, Where is that forgery? How does he come across the materials to do that? Who cares? It doesn't matter. Not He's right. just going to be a badass scene of him forging an axe, and it's super cool. He wears, like, sunglasses while he does it. It's not even, like, welder's uh, goggles yeah, or just anything. Aviators. It's just fucking, <laughs> yeah. like... <laughs> that's that's where i was kind of curious ryan to get your opinion on it because when we talk about movies um and anybody who listens to this podcast knows i have a little ryan in my head who asks questions where do things come from how did they get these things what the fuck is this even um and, where is and, this yeah. giant stone with an axe shaped hole in it yeah, where did yeah. that come they, from? They, <laughs> they just had they just had this quarry that they could build a church in and they have a tree stump in the middle of that quarry that they give as a pulpit or something i don't know what are all of these things um i was kind of curious like how did you approach sort of those elements of the movie or were you was it that it overwhelmed you so much with style that you were like i'm not gonna ask those questions i really don't care it doesn't matter i'm having a great time yeah i think this movie pretty quickly tells you that it's just outside of that right like I, what i get fascinated by are those things that try to present you with it being internally consistent and then it's not Hmm. Um, or trying to present itself as some kind of reality, but then they didn't do their research or really attempt to to think about or things that are just like obvious, like that was lazy <laughs> yeah. to, to skip by something. Here, this movie's pretty quickly gives you before they even are on drugs, it's kind of trippy. Mm-hmm. Right. There's kind of some weird conversations. There's some dreams, maybe, right? Because we like Mandy's in the woods and finds this dead deer. Um that, that there's sort of these, yeah, like, uh, what what do you make of it? Um, and so, the, and the same, the color palette's weird and already there. Her artwork's a little strange. Their house looks a little strange. Like, everything, and then it looks like, even when they're just hanging out on the lake in the woods, we get these, like, large zoom-outs and strange things and quiet. Like, um, cutting so, like, from the lake to fire and, like, you yeah. know, foreshadowing and, yeah. Yeah, before we get to the fire, we get this whole, the whole screen is just flames, Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. right. So it's like a lot of like, it just really sets the tone to tell you like, Hey, like we're in a weird area. You ready yet? We're going to go deeper. Like, just get ready. It's going to get weirder. And so then at that point you're just like off. It doesn't matter. Like you, you can't, you didn't really sit here and think about like, well, how do the drugs work? Or what is that beetle? Yeah. Or where is this room? And what, how do these lights work? And how did he get a tiger? And like, if you stop and you spend time <laughs> with that stuff, you're just missing everything that's going on. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, yeah, because because characters have like a like there's a whole sequence where uh, Red doesn't say anything. That's in the lab, the acid lab uh-huh. with the chemist, where the chemist is just like getting high on his supply. And he's like, oh, man, they fucked you up, didn't they? Oh, that sucks, dude. Yeah. And he just <laughs> yeah. he's like, why do they got to do that? Red says nothing. And he's like, you've got a cosmic darkness about you. And it speaks to like this other plane of consciousness that everybody must be on because they can all kind of silently understand each other in some way um like the fact that the the chemist then just goes like let me just check real quick and he like lifts his head up and goes like oh and then he comes back down he's like they're north like he was like attuning to where the children are um and he just has a big fucking tiger that he lets out for whatever reason and the tiger then just disappears and it's like what 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 the fuck what was the point of that it's like i guess it's this symbolism of like cage being unleashed on being yeah, uncaged yeah. upon yeah. the uh, the the children because yeah, like he was yeah. wearing that tiger t-shirt earlier in the movie yeah, yeah. 
and then they ripped his t-shirt. You ripped my shirt! You ripped my shirt! Different shirt, yeah. the 44 oh, yeah, shirt. That's yeah. right, it's 44 is the one that got ripped. I, I think one of the interesting themes to me in the movie is the like, you know, he who seeks revenge should dig two graves type of thing. And you have like, you know, Cage lashing out against this biker gang and taking their drugs, doing a like mountain of cocaine that's just sitting <laughs> yes. on a piece of broken glass, <laughs> just shoves it straight into his nose. So good. Um, and you know, like he's getting their blood poured all over him and he's laughing and he's got to be ingesting that as he's doing these drugs and stuff. And then, um, you know, by the end of the movie, he's talking in their voice, like the voice of the biker gang people. And he also is using the rhetoric of the cult leader, right? Like he's, towering over the cult leader and when when the cult leader goes quickly from don't you see how this is your path to me to salvation to i'll suck your dick man like yeah. just whatever and then <laughs> cage just goes i am your god now <laughs> and then like rips his skull in half because he's got like weird biker strength now um but it's like you know he basically has become the the two groups that he has been fighting against right as he has gone through this he's like wearing one of the biker's vests like he's looking more like them and adopting those characteristics as he goes to the movie and then like at the end of the movie i assume he just like drives into a tree and dies you know like he's <laughs> like hallucinating and staring wide-eyed out the passenger window i assume the car probably just you know goes into a tree or a lake or something and he's just no more at that point but it's um i think it's an interesting devolution and uh, you know it feels like it's it's almost a the flip of a switch when he decides to go on this murderous rampage, like it's, you know, that he's going to get there, but to watch it kind of slowly happen as he is one by one killing all these people, um, is pretty fascinating, I think. Yeah. And there's only one person he doesn't kill. And that's the chemist, I think, uh, right? No, that's the no. chemist. Two people he doesn't kill. It's the chemist. Yeah. Cause he doesn't the, kill that the, girl either. Woman. Yeah. The girl. Mm. Oh, the girl who was like the, the proves, victim of that yeah. group who, yeah, almost killed herself. Yeah. 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 Yeah, she she gets out of that car, he kills that one dude, and then he just leaves, and you see like that one tear from her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely on like that path where he's specifically going after like the problem, just right down the chain or right up the chain, whatever. Yep. Like dealing with each thing as he gets to it. I I do see it is yeah, he just completely gives in to all of it, and it's just like okay, like that's that's how it is. That's how we're gonna be. Like okay. Like it's done. Like he just is mm -hmm. that same level of like violence and um, that's it. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I agree. I don't know where he goes afterwards. It just is like, it's over. Um, I do see that it, the, the ending, it's interesting because he's hallucinating kind of, and I guess like he sees, he sees Mandy a few times through like cartoon images. Yeah. Maybe. And Heavy then at the end, animated. Yeah, imagery. at the end, kind of sees her in the car, almost, I would say, like, looking approvingly at him. Like, he kind of mm -hmm. imagines it's a little different, and he's, like, smiling and very happy with, like, who he is now, I guess. But it's like or, a like, deranged to be. smile. Like, yeah. eyes as open as possibly can be, like, open-mouthed smile. Like, there's something wrong, you know? Yeah, almost like, a, like, like everything's good now, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's all good, <laughs> yeah, when it's, like, clearly not. Yeah. He goes off into his happily ever after in whatever he can, which is probably a state of psychosis or a psychotic break due to yeah. all the drugs he's ingested. And may maybe seeing Mandy at the end is represent is representative of him passing into the next life. 
yeah, feeling cleansed and done, done with it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I discovered after watching this movie that I really like the movies where I was thinking about this and like, there are a few others where like the wardrobe as it goes on just gets like, you know, it changes for the main character to symbolize a lot of their change. And I mean, in this instance, it's pretty straightforward that red, his name is red. And, and by, by the, the end, end of it, he's red. blood red. Yeah. He's just completely covered in red. <laughs> like it's just going to happen. When he slits uh, that dude's throat, who's on top of him and just the blood is spewing all over his face. And at first he's annoyed. And then he just starts smiling and laughing. He's yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like genuinely that was um, as that was like Cage ha- was able to actively feed off of that happening to him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's because it's got to be ludicrous to have that much like blood gush into your face. Oh yeah, I can't <laughs> yeah. Like you just can't help but laugh. I was uh, thinking about yeah, like Cage um, at, at a point where he, where he lights the cigarette like off of the burning dead guy. Yeah, <laughs> and he's like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he's just completely covered in blood, and he like lights that cigarette off that guy. I was like looking at, it and I was like, only Cage could do this. Only Cage could be this. That it's like you can get an actor that that's that brave to just be like, yeah, just cover me in in crazy blood shit every day for shooting. And like, let's go. <laughs> Put fire next to my face, and uh, yeah, it we're, we're catch. fine. Whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but I really do like, cause I, I can only think of this movie and then, uh, the silent hill movie has like a character who throughout it transitions from having kind of more clothes that are plain and like innocence, I suppose, to ones that are completely stained and drenched in like the blood of others because of just like the corruption around them. And I realize that that's something that I think I'm a sucker for in movies. I think I really dig watching a character have that meta, like that physical transformation along with their internal, yeah. um, like kind of moral compass and like, yeah. Cage getting that Ascension voice toward the end where he's, you know, saying that he's God, um, was just wild. Uh, and, and like also just him showing up and like throwing a head in that sequence too, like throwing the woman's head onto mm-hmm. the, yeah. the floor is fucking wild. <laughs> yeah. Cause the cult leader's like this, the presence of God is here. You cannot come in. And he just chucks a head into the room. <laughs> just starts freaking out. Yeah. Uh, we haven't talked about the scene where that instigates all of this where, you know, so the cult leader sees Mandy walking down the road and he's like, I felt you calling to me. And he has his minions go kidnap her and, bring her in and they drug her up and all this stuff. And then they bring her drugged out of her mind into this room where you know the cult leader and some people are just kind of spread, spread out clearly high as fuck. And the cult leader is just wearing a robe and he starts playing his own music and stuff. And it's, it's just absurd. And he just gets up and starts talking about them having sex and his robe opens and he's got this tiny little dick there. And Andrew Riseborough just starts laughing her head off. Yeah, <laughs> which is just a hilarious reaction, and of course that is uh, sentenced uh, to death uh, when you laugh at at the size of the cult leader's dick. That's, well, was, you're not going to survive was, that. It was a mixture of like the size of his dick, and then the fact that he said that his song is better than the Carpenters, uh-huh. <laughs> and that it's all yeah. about him. His song is all about him and how great he is. And, and it's a terrible t- song. It's it sounds like a like a fucking like elf playing a lute in a fantasy movie or something. Like it just sounds it's like. Yeah, they would play it at like a Ren Fair. Yeah, it like sounds a- like a Renaissance Fair song. <laughs> That's what I was looking for, yeah. Exactly. Definitely, I saw that, yeah, this like rejection of, of him where like everyone else is just, that's around him is just giving in to him and, you know, being sucked into his stuff, whether in which he just completely mistreats everybody, right? It's, it's kind of like a classic cult leader, like he draws him in and then he just 
constantly is going back and forth between love and hate and love and hate to get them in this confused state. Uh, and when he presents himself as this perfect being to her and she's just like, you're off. Yeah. like, fuck that. <laughs> fuck you. Yeah. Uh, he can't take it. Right. Like he immediately mm-hmm. flips and then is like, oh, she's the most beautiful thing on the planet. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, she's the most beautiful thing. Then she rejects him and he immediately goes to red and is like, oh, she's a whore. She's awful. Like whatever. Like just that because he didn't get what he wanted from her. Like he's he rejects it immediately. Um, and is pissed and doesn't know how to handle it. Yeah. We haven't even talked about the fact that the cultists possess several artifacts. Um, the Horn of Abraxas? Presented. The Horn of Abraxas, everybody. <laughs> I don't know uh, what that is, but I guess it calls the biker demons when you blow in it. Yeah, I want one of those. How do I get a Horn of Abraxas exactly? <laughs> I don't know that I want the, to be able to call the biker demons. That seems bad. They just demand blood yeah, you for have blood. To sacrifice you call them. somebody. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you got to bring you got to bring Lardo along with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what does that henchman say? He's like Lardo wouldn't be able to locate his nose in the mirror. mirror so yeah. it's like not yeah. even funny or or clever. Like what the what the, what do you even mean by and that? Jeremiah just laugh about it, yeah. and you're like, what the fuck is going on? Um, yeah, the guy who looks like a hamburger boy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like all their like weapons and stone ocarinas or whatever the fuck they all are were just like bullshit like kind of all their they like expound all these supposed things of like what it is or where it came from but it's just sort of like no like it's just it's just a <laughs> dagger right like there's no real power when, when you get to the bottom of it like right, it does yeah. seem almost mystical at the beginning like they blow the horn the guys show up they sacrifice like it you know you kind of don't know what's going on but by the end of the movie you're like oh they're just fucked up people like there's no all the, mm-hmm. all of it's all shed away. Yeah, it's not a magical dagger. You can clean that wound with vodka, just like any other wound, and you'll you'll be fine. You know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That that was like I really like the style to emphasize those though. It's like a real oh yeah, just that like flashing green whenever they pull something out, and it just visually cues you into uh, whatever the fuck this is. It's supposed to be important to them anyway. Um, but yeah, like there there were certain moments in that where I really like. I feel like that's the pulpier stuff that Panos brings in to the script where like it really does feel like that old eighties, like heavy metal or even before that, like when you get to like looking at sort of what is metal and like what's cool in a metal story, it is things that are proper nouns. Like, I mean, (laughs) there's there's a lot of shit where you're like, uh, it's the horn of Abraxas and it like summons the armies of the dead or some shit. And you'd be like, ah, cool. Um, But then you find out, yeah, it it demystifies it. That's that deconstruction that happens later. And then you have the ax that Cage forges and there is no name to it. But, but it does seem to have mystical powers. <laughs> like, yeah, it fucking works. So yeah, yeah. made out of some crazy metal that is light enough for him to wield very quickly and heavy enough to like deal a death blow when you throw it at somebody. He can just like full on like tomahawk throw into some mm-hmm. dude's head with precision accuracy. Oh, that that, thing that is, scene like, was so cool. Like, that, that thing yeah. is like hippie Un- seeking or like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. unlike Leatherface's dad, he can do it in one swing. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, like, right, Led Zeppelin sings about Lord of the Rings. Like, there definitely is a certain amount of, like, this connection with, you know, fantasy. Like, old metal used to use, like, fantasy artwork and shit like that. It was all kind of, like, intertwined. But the, the like, the naming of their bullshit, earlier we see Mandy reading a page out of this fantasy novel that is someone's getting this, like, mystical eye of the serpent. The same thing. There's all these fucking proper nouns or whatever, 
which is why she's able to just like see through it as just like, yeah, you know, whatever you named your fucking thing. I read that in a fantasy novel. Like she's, she's able to just be like, there, there are different things they are in different places. Like you're buying into the bullshit. Yeah. Um, and she brings it like in one of the animated sequences too. I think she recreates the sequence she read in the book. Where yeah. She, she pulls like, out a green oh, yeah. stone from a demon. Um, I also, while we're talking about the, the conversation between the cult leader and Mandy, there's a really cool shot when they do that. And it's like yeah. the cult leader is just saying all this stupid bullshit about how great he is and how he's, you know, it's a wonderful privilege to have his dick inside of her. And then they show like a fa- a close up on his face and then slowly blend that into a close up on Mandy's face and kind of go back and forth. And sometimes it's like a cross between the faces or sometimes it's just blatantly like one side is his face and one side is hers and it's edited in just this really subtle way where it changes very slightly and they actually have very similar facial structures that you don't really notice until they do that and kind of overlap their their faces with each other but um i thought i thought that scene was really cool it didn't really like i I don't know that necessarily served like a, a purpose for the scene right of like how his speech was dumb but it just looked really cool and maybe it's a way of like uh you know kind of the the manipulative power of the cult to try to like pull her in and identify with what the message is. But, um, it's just cool to look at. Yeah. It was kind of like an attunement in a way where it, it was, he was trying to get into like the frequency that would take over, like kind of convince her in some way. It's yeah. also just a much more interesting way to present that discussion than having simple one twos or a flat wide shot. Um, it, it yeah. definitely made, what he was saying was like mesmerizing as bullshit as it was because of that shot. Um, it reminded me of Persona uh, by Ingmar Bergman. There's a famous scene toward the end of the movie where um, one of the characters says a long monologue and they show her saying it up close on her face for one take and then they show it all again on the person who's hearing it and you see her reaction to it and they don't intersplice them. It's like you hear the whole monologue twice and once you get the person who's saying it and then again you get the person who's hearing it. And, uh, you know, I, I saw some influence there with how they did that where they're overlapping the faces so you're kind of getting both at the same time but without having to listen to the monologue twice. Yeah, I think that scene is interesting from the fact that everything about it from like a classical cult standpoint mandy fits the mold to join but completely rejects it right she has this like troubled past she's away from her family she's outside of society and they want to be and feel estranged like someone comes in and is like hey you know, listen to me i can make it work you can join this you can be a part of it like all of it that she should like be able to buy into and she's drugged out of her mind and like all of it is all this like mesmerizing whatever and the fact that in that state she's like no like somehow mandy's like gone through it and able to reject it which i think that 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 was the other part that i went back and i was like trying to piece together the conversations they have Mm -hmm. in the beginning she talks about her favorite planet being jupiter because it's just like constantly a storm which I was like, is sort of the like early college bullshit that somebody says. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, of like, oh, I'm so dark, like all of that or whatever. Um, but then when she tells the story about the starlings and how she saw this like beauty in them 
and Starlings group in like ridiculous fucking numbers. These like huge mesmerizing clouds of Starlings. Um, and then her dad comes in and is like, no, we need to get rid of them, which I kind of saw as that like uh, conservative Reagan. It seemed a little bit tied to that of mm. this like family values. We bring the whole family together and murder something together. And then <laughs> yeah, like yeah. everything is better. Um and he, you know, he has these babies and is wanting each kid to smash them. And everyone else seemingly joined in, according to her story. And she, even at this young age, is able to reject that. Like, she knows it was wrong, even at you know, however she old she was. But as a kid, she's like, no, this is wrong. And she runs and rejects it. And so she's had that core at, all along that she's able to then reject this as well. That, like, she's herself and she knows it and she knows what she is and she doesn't need those other things. There's an interesting meditation there on like, when you think about Mandy and red as a couple, like red doesn't have that particular backing. Like red, maybe he's able to reject it as well. That's like the core between them is that they're both able to reject in a way um, the, the cult and the corruption but red is also able to dip into it when he needs to. And I don't know that Mandy could, do it in particular like um she talks about the violence towards the starlings and the starlings themselves representing sort of like a natural innocence and like a, a group of people being able to bash that out of their personality or their existence and she's just not able to to quell that um but like somebody so i don't want to like hold mandy up on a pedestal as being like the most pure woman or anything but just like somebody who has that core goodness to them and the world snuffing it out basically like coming to find it yeah. and snuffing it out and red being the character who is able to stoop to the rest of the level of the world and snuff out anything that's going to try to snuff that goodness um, is, is yeah. interesting. Yeah. Red is. has definitely bought into Mandy. Mm -hmm. Like that's one piece that, that like we see he's like totally into her, into her artwork. <laughs> like, whether you, you know, I don't know that we see enough to know if it's good or bad, but he's like, it's the greatest thing ever. Like he has definitely built himself around her now. Um, but I do see in like, he talks about his favorite planet and initially he's like Saturn, which she says is like, it's the first, you know, it's the first that was found. It's not the largest, but you know, it's seemingly going with it. Saturn is the original, like before Zeus, you know, or before Jupiter. Um, you know, so it's sort of like this oldest, most powerful thing. And then I like that. Then he takes a step further and he's like, no, nah, I want Galactus. I want the thing that eats <laughs> the thing that's older yeah. than everything else, <laughs> right? Eats all of the other things, which I'm like, that's what he becomes. He is the one that then is like above all of it and destroys all of it. Um, so it's like that was in him as well, that he was not only going to reject it, but reject it and destroy it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of good and evil imagery too, and and a lot of like Christian imagery where, like you know the the cult leader when he has tied up Red and he's about to light Mandy on fire, he's like, you know what Jesus, uh, you know did where he went wrong? He didn't find somebody to be a sacrifice for him, and like he's got they leave Red like tied up on a fence, like and just left to die, like sort of like a crucifixion. Um, and then, you know, he breaks free and then later he's captured by the bikers and they nail his hand down to the yeah. floor. And so like, there's a lot of imagery there of red as this savior figure, but then like having that turn into 
destruction and just kind of becoming evil itself rather than and it's like he can't you know it's too late he can't save mandy the only person he can save at that point is himself but he doesn't want to you know and he he just wants to keep pushing and, and destroying i would say also yeah. in terms of greek mythology um the the way that they leave red tied to the fence and they stab him is reminiscent of um not just jesus but like uh prometheus too who was a titan mm. who would have matched the titans as well was left to just like have his liver eaten out it, constantly liver, right? Um, because he gave fire to man and he like gave, he basically gave power of gods to men. Um, and so maybe it was like that red was able to give Mandy some strength reciprocal, but was also like, if he's part of this group of other darkness and could destroy it, like, I don't know. There's just a lot of really cool imagery and uh, mythology that's pulled on that. I, I like it. I like the way that it plays with that. Yeah. Um, definitely the jesus imagery of the like he has the barbed wire in his mouth it's not on his head but it's barbed wire and kind of the traditional like white jesus has the barbed wire on his head um and then the stabbing of like the spear into the side like kind of similar but then it yeah i was trying to decide whether it was uh he's rejecting the martyrdom or he's like Jesus at Revelations, where he just comes back with the flaming sword. I wasn't sure yeah. which one it's going for, but either either he's rejecting it or he is the like, eventually Jesus comes back and fucks everything up. Yeah. I mean, it definitely, there's no intermediate step where he like preaches forgiveness, forgiveness and tries to get people to like, you know, change their ways. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he looks at the other guy drinking. Like maybe oh, with yeah, some disdain, they, I don't know. <laughs> where does the cheddar goblin fit into all of this? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I want to talk about that. I, I, I want to talk about the sequence of after Cage escapes from you know they leave him chained to this fence or barbed wire to this fence, and he's able to squirm free, and he he goes home and just kind of walks into his house in a daze and sees this ad for cheddar goblin mac and cheese, like an entire ad that they just made for the movie that just seems so out of place. Who ate all the macaroni and cheese? Oh, cheddar goblin. Cheddar goblin, did you eat all the macaroni and cheese? Nothing's better than cheddar. Cheddar goblin. Yeah! <laughs> cheddar goblin by Devane has 60% more cheese than the next leading brand. And it's like, I don't know if that's a commentary on 80s commercialism and like just kind of how it's so pointless, like in the grand scheme of everything that people are experiencing. But like he sees that and he just mumbles, Cheddar Goblin. And then he just goes and like collapses <laughs> on the bed. <laughs> and then w- like wakes up like as if he has like just like sniffed coke or something. He just like jumps off the bed and shoots into the bathroom. And like, I, I, I fucking love that scene where you know this is one of those scenes where like oh it's cage going crazy but like you know he just watched his wife or girlfriend get burned alive in front of him and just had to watch a cheddar goblin ad and uh you know then he's like he like busts into like the secret cabinet where he keeps his vodka and just starts screaming and like pouring it all over his like stab wounds and just chugging it and just sits down on the toilet and is like chugging vodka and screaming and just going back and forth between the two. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, uh, uh. 
it's just such a such a visceral emotional performance and like it never comes across as laughable or too much like it's just uh I, I think it's a really great and incredible performance and just captures what that character would be feeling like in that moment and I feel like oftentimes you know in movies you have actors underplaying these moments or like some horrible thing just happened to them and they're just like shedding a single tear and being mopey. And it's like, no, like if that happened to me, I'd probably chug a bottle of whiskey and yell like that's probably what I would do. You know? <laughs> yeah, you could you could lose your fucking mind in that kind of it, it is a cathartic scene. Yeah. Um, where he just needs to let it out, like everything that he's seen, he can't really process. And there's only one way to do it. And it's this. Um, yeah, I felt like the Cheddar Goblin thing was one of those like it's cranked so hard to because okay let's let's talk about it from a filmmaking standpoint you could show a commercial from 1983 and that would be you know kind of a oh ha look what they did they're they're showing you know like what a life cereal commercial he likes it hey mikey whatever Yeah. yeah where's the beef any of that and and it would kind of be like, you know, life goes on, the world keeps turning. But like Cheddar Goblin is so absurd that it really <laughs> emphasizes just how fucking stupid like ads and television and everything like the world can continue going on when all this horrific shit happens. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it was like to accentuate and em- emphatically make that point of just, hey, uh, I'm sorry that your your girlfriend got burned to a crisp, but Cheddar Goblin still loves you. <laughs> Wants to eat all your cheddar. <laughs> I liked it that after the ad, they they just go off the air, and it's like because it's <laughs> yeah, like two in the morning or whatever, so they're just not broadcasting it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I think the Cheddar Goblin piece is just there of like a moment of brevity and to mm-hmm. remind you like this is outside the realms of everything. Like we're going down the crazy train of like it, though it was interesting to me that the book that Mandy reads is also fake and completely made. And they made like a Mm. cover and they wrote at least one page entirely uh, of this seemingly fantasy novel. Uh, And then they went to, yeah, they went to the trouble of making the commercial. I love fake commercials in shows. I love when they go to trouble to make like a fake. But what do you know? You're just a bear, Ryan. (laughs) Yes, exactly. When there's like an in-universe television show or commercial or whatever that they've Mm. crafted for it, it is definitely the typical 80s commercial of bullshit. I I don't know how much to look into it. Yeah, the, the one thing I kind of glean there, and I think this is just not artist intent, but me having my own vision of it, is the, like, it being a goblin, something that should be scary and horrifying. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it's like barfing the cheddar <laughs> macaroni all over the kids and they're just okay with it. That I was like, yeah, there is this like warping in the 80s with commercials to take things that like should be horrifying and then just like make them sell you. And yeah. by you, I mean kids, because that was the mm. 80s target audience bullshit and i was like like a leprechaun like leprechauns fucking aren't a good thing in the stories back right, in the day yeah. right yeah. but it's like here he is got a cereal kids Ooh, Got all the marshmallows yeah or yeah, like, like so much prison imagery in children's <laughs> television <laughs> like commercials it's, it's oh yeah wild. don't uh, let's yeah i was gonna say all children's cereal commercials are about stealing 
but let's we'll put that aside. Yeah. Home I invasion. There's a lot of thing. home invasion in children's commercials. <laughs> that's, the that's tricks a whole commercials are the most fucked up. I think where there's like yeah. you can't have any, you fucking rabbit. There's are only <laughs> for you. kids. It's like, us. are you guys racist? Or what's going on here? <laughs> this is like really fucked up. The guy just wants. He just wants some fucking cereal. Just he's an addict. Just give him some cereal. Just a... <laughs> yeah, they keep it from that cocoa guy too, and he fucking loses his mind. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, no, I kind of I did see it as that like it's the '80s glorification commercialization. They can take anything and wash it into something to sell you, even if it should be something that's horrifying. Because the goblin they have on there is not a good-looking goblin either. No, not at all. <laughs> like, it's terrifying. It should be, it's exactly the terrifying goblin it should be. Um, but yeah, no, I, I don't know. Like, it, it being there just felt like that like moment of brevity. Like, you know, pause, take a breath. Let's get into the upsetting stuff, and then we'll get back to the insanity. Yeah, and then we go right back to the insanity with the bathroom scene. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, I would also say that like the movie, it's supposed to take place in the Pacific Northwest, um, mm-hmm. but it's shot in Belgium, right? Somewhere in Europe. I forget where um, exactly, but yeah. And they find so many, I know that like in the behind the scenes, they said, uh, that, that they weren't sure if they really wanted to shoot there. And then when they started scouting, they found locations and that place just looks magical. Like the whole movie's oh, yeah. setting is like, just like dense forest. And then that big ravine uh that quarry that's just where the church is built and everything yeah. it's just insane and the the forest where they're actively logging it like that is such a weird surreal image where you know you're just seeing the active destruction of nature of which red is a part of right like that's his job he yeah. actually works a chainsaw for a living and and cuts down trees which is why he's so good at winning a chainsaw fight mm-hmm. um <laughs> against a man who has a much bigger chainsaw yeah which he's I got like a three foot <laughs> chainsaw and the bad guy's got like an eight foot chainsaw did they show that in the trailer ryan were you surprised when the man pulled out a gigantic chainsaw a bigger chainsaw <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i was surprised by that <laughs> that's not a knife this is a knife yeah <laughs> <laughs> that segues into the weird sexual undertones of <laughs> so much of this. How do you have a chainsaw uh, fight and not have sexual undertones? Come on. Yeah. This would definitely <laughs> put overtones. it even more on front street. Yeah. The uh, And the fact that it's like he can't get his chainsaw started. Uh-huh, <laughs> yeah. Right. Like there was, yeah, it was so much on the nose. Um, but yeah, even like early on the, the cult leader, there is uh, like homosexual bisexual undertones to the relationships as well that are it's not necessarily explored but it's definitely like yeah he's like number two has a weird smithers-esque kind of relationship to him yeah yeah definitely that that that's there the sort of uh gimp outfits of all of the bikers Mm -hmm. as well and then yeah this like chainsaw fight and then it, it it's capped off with this there's no other way to read it but orgasmic release that, yes. that yes. Red has at the end uh-huh. of, when he yeah, of all of it. breaks the cult leader's skull with his hands. Yeah, yeah. there's a release in the score, and yeah, with him. Uh, oh. <laughs> That's exactly. Uh, <laughs> oh, uh, man. Yeah, I want to talk about that, that final scene, because that scene's really... I think that that's such a cool culmination of the, the entire film. Like, even before Red gets to the church there's that fucking rad sequence where they do 
they do they do a zoom right they do like the the jaws zoom kind of thing sort of slowly you're talking about the shot of the church the from shot, the outside yeah as he's walking over out. over the cliff whenever he's like scouting and mm-hmm. they do that slow oh, zoom yeah, shot yeah. it just gorgeously reveals everything um to when uh red walks into the church well first he slings his axe into the head of that that dimwit dude who's wiping down the car uh the guy who really was obsessed with rolling the windows down earlier and rolling them back up Uh. um and then he's confronted by the the old woman who uh um she's the most sensual lover you will have that is the most uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and genuine line read i've heard of something (laughs) like that i just i was like i 100 percent believe that she believes that (laughs) it was pretty much the same conversation in hour of the wolf when he first came into the castle and the old lady hit on him yeah yeah Uh yeah yeah exactly and uh and like we don't even see how that ends. It's just like she's just like I'm a, a gentle like lover, and I've got the I can arches of a twenty year old. I can meet you like like warm waves licking the hard rock. <laughs> and you're like, Ugh. and all that red does is slowly look down at her, and then a hard cuts. Um, uh, like but, what happened? Oh, then he throws her head into the the church. Just, yeah, just wonderful. And like at the heart of the church, that whole like the lights are just constantly dimming, and it's not like a flicker or a flash or anything but it's slowly pulsing like the energy in that room it's so cool the way they like it just looks great like you know you have this neon red light that goes dim to this midnight blue and then comes back and goes dim and they use that to cut between cage and jeremiah as they're talking back and forth and not every time it dims does it cut but that's the only time it cuts is when there's a dim and it just works perfectly it just looks great yeah jeremiah is rubbing on a wall for whatever reason i'm sure that that's <laughs> something he likes to do um but yeah like that whole last sequence where it is kind of the the confrontation because we have this callback to earlier where jeremiah had um had read completely bound to something and he was able to talk tough and he attempts to do the exact same thing here and clearly fails because Red throws a head in that scares the shit out of him and immediately throws him off. He starts screaming about it. And then he just has this whole moment of like, you don't, don't do anything to me. Like uh, and he starts crying and like saying it's like his dick. It's not just your life. I can say, no, it's your goddamn soul. No, 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 please, please, please don't hurt me. Can't you see this was all part of your journey? that led you to me, to your salvation, to a cleansing by my head. Oh, I'll blow you, man. I'll suck your fucking dick. Then he bounces back and decides, no, I have to like power through and tell no, him. I am touched by God. You kneel yeah. before me. You, you, you can't do this. And. Um, it's so amazing to watch him go through like the seven stages of grief uh, for his own life. <laughs> in, in like 45 seconds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he just accepts, uh, he, well, he forcibly accepts what's going to happen to him as, <laughs> as, uh, as Red crushes his skull there. Um, I am your god now. <laughs> it's just so wild. Uh, but yeah, like that, that whole sequence um, just such a good cap to everything else that's happened. And it's it's mm-hmm. weird because it's like, it's it's a uh, disturbing it's upsetting it's bittersweet as well because it's not going to bring n- nothing that red has done is going to bring mandy back um 
but it is like the closest he can get to kind of a satisfying revenge. And at this point, it's also just bittersweet because he's lost. Red's lost his humanity. He's like, mm-hmm. when when Mandy died, he pretty much was just going to go on the spiral and end it there. Um, and then we get to see the car ride after that whole thing just uh, really sticks with you. And the credits that roll after that have no music. There's like nothing to yeah. carry you out of it, right? It's a very haunting ending and then yeah the with the credits sticking with no music it just leaves you to kind of ponder the way this thing has ended in the whole journey you've gone on throughout this whole movie where you don't really have a chance to think about it right you're just in the shit and you're living it you're like holy fuck let's just strap in and go and then at the end you like get a chance in the credits to breathe and be like oh shit like and kind of think about how we got to where we did and how pointless it all was yeah um, well, did y'all have anything else, uh, you wanted to add for Mandy? Uh, I also want to mention that Bill Duke is awesome in this as like the dude who lives in a trailer and is just like <laughs> watching Red's crossbow for him. <laughs> it's just loyally watching it. <laughs> and like at Red, you know, when Red decides to go on his revenge spree, he goes and knocks on the door of his trailer, which says, fuck off. And you just hear, can't you read from the inside? And plus he's like, oh, it's you. And, uh, you know, he gives him the crossbow and, and some arrows and he tells him, you know, some weird stories about the biker gang and how fucked up they are are but uh bill duke is always great and i loved seeing him in this very small role but uh it was he was a fun addition to the cast yeah um well i i just thought of one other question and that is uh are there any other movies that this reminds you of because for me i've already mentioned it several times heavy metal is something that this feels like is a heavy inspiration um no pun intended there but uh there's like I'm sure plenty of other kind of genres that do this. And and then the behind the scenes, they talked about how um, Panos was like really inspired that uh, a lot of what he does is bring like B movie tropes and stories and like actually injects them with full style and gives them like a quality treatment. A movie production. Yeah, a movie yeah. production treatment. So I was curious if there was anything else that, uh, that really kind of sparked in y'all's minds um, watching it that you've. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. I, I would say that like there like there's definitely some Lynchian similarities here. Of them, I would probably say Lost Highway is maybe the most similar to this, um, which I think is a fascinating movie. That's that's super interesting. It's not as off the wall as as Mandy, but it's got some similar you know weird aspects to it. Um, and then I do think Hour Hour of the Wolf, like you said, Ryan, there are some parallels there for sure here. Yeah, I think. I mean, John, have you ever seen a Sherlock movie where a biker kills somebody and then... Oh, all the <laughs> time. A revi- yeah. That's, <laughs> I just that's watched one two a, days ago. It was not great. <laughs> yeah, that's that, That's definitely a trope. Um, I, I would say that one thing that was really interesting to me was the use of the drug to, like, fuck with the visuals, which reminded me a little of Midsummer. Um Oh, yeah. You talking about when Cage but, picks up that d- jar of gray goop and like sticks his finger in it and then tastes it and there's like that weird ass trippy scene. Yeah, that's he's just, super trippy. His like face melts <laughs> away melts. and all this yeah. stuff and you're like, so, like that's one of the coolest visual sequences in the film. Yeah, 
Well, that that and like when um, Mandy and the cult leader are talking and there's kind oh, of this yeah. like trippy, like delay wash to like everything and the way of the sound design in this. It's like, like when a video game character is. is moving fast and he's got like a, you know, a trail behind yeah. him, but they're moving slow and you can see where their face it's used the to be. It's time. Yeah. 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 Uh-huh. It, definitely like it made me appreciate it. Like this is digital effects, like all the bullshit where we fill in shit that we're just too lazy to film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they could have been a practical effect that would be good like this is one of those like no you could not do this before digital effects it, you probably do the like kind of fady thing like in camera but like like that some of the stuff that they do you can't do until you had digital effects digital audio change like all of that that they ended up doing that i'm like that's exactly an interesting thing to do with that medium with that tool um I think I got some like Tarantino vibes. It's definitely like a Tarantino revenge. A lot of blood like, packs. Level of blood. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the kind of over the topness of it. It's, and then the it, to, to some extent, this is the Manson perversion that we see in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Sort of like yep. taking Manson down to instead of this like glorified level to this like, yeah, there's just a bunch of fucking high hippies doing some bullshit <laughs> they think yeah. is cool. Like definitely takes them down a peg. And this came out a year before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I don't know what Tarantino's thoughts are, uh, are on it, but I'm pretty sure you're probably positive, <laughs> if I had to guess. <laughs> yeah, I think I think this is pretty... Yeah, the like, B-movie to qualities and the hyper-violence, Tarantino fucking loves this movie. Uh-huh. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> there needs to be more feet. That's really the only thing. That's, That's true. Yeah. 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 That's why he likes Hour of the Wolf. There's there you <laughs> go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. That's, that's true. Um, to your point about the digital effects, Ryan, I was trying to figure out before we started recording if this was shot on film or not, because it's got this intense grain to it. And it has a very similar visual effect to Beyond the Black Rainbow, which was shot on 35. And I was convinced when I watched Beyond the Black Rainbow, I was like, sure, this was shot on 16. It's so grainy. But it was shot on 35. I was like, I wonder if this is an effect they put in afterward. And then with Mandy, like on the IMDb tech specs, it never mentions film at all and i was really surprised by that and i was like i wonder if they did a they cloned tyrone type of after effect to add the grain um and the grain looks really cool like it it works with the 80s vibe really well um but it looks so much better than it did in they cloned tyrone and yeah. I, I was like i don't yeah. sure i i was like surely they just didn't mention that it was shot on film on imdb right but i have no idea i don't know if it's shot digitally or on film yeah if it's a digital effect to add the grain they nailed it it's um, so good if, yeah, yeah, if it's they so put well it done. in post. Yeah, yeah. There are, and we've, I, I've seen I it done in so many other things and not done well. So yeah, it's... Yeah. yeah. I'm kind of amazed when that's like mishandled in a way. Like Black Dynamite also has kind of a noticeable digital film grain added right. to it. And but it looks good more in Black ter- Dynamite. It's more tolerable, yeah. yeah. There. But like I... I pay for one of those as well. And I've used it a few times just when I fuck around making pre-rolls for movies and stuff. And like, oh, yeah. it's amazing how much you can customize the amount of film grain and like noise and dirt and scratches and stuff. And I'm like, who over there did not do, did they just render it? It took too long to render. And they were like, we're not going to go back. Tyrone. Yeah. Or yeah. like whatever movie fucks up that kind of film grain. It's like, Oh, we're not going to go back and fix this. It's like, but you, you can just tweak a slider and you're fine. Like, <laughs> they're really not that bad. I, I do wonder with something like they clone Tyrone or black dynamite, if they kind of get to the end of the budget or the end of their time window. And they're kind of just like, just release oh, it. Let's just use the default settings. Let's Sorry, go. Yeah. Just go for it. Uh, yeah, yeah. 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 That's probably true. 
Um, uh, I have one final comment. Um, yeah. John, you mentioned that you watched the Blu-ray special feature, as as did I. Uh, did you get the temporary tattoos that came with the Blu-ray no, steelbook? No, they didn't give no? me any temporary tattoos. Oh, I'm, I'm pissed oh, off that I didn't get uh, that. I have a Mandy temporary tattoo on my work laptop that I put on there two years ago and is still there somehow. Um, it looks really bad. It's like the Mandy font with like all of the it's stems metal coming font, out of it. Basically. Yeah, it looks really cool. But there are also, there's there's one more like smaller black one that they have. The one I have on my laptop is red. And then they have two Cheddar Goblin temporary tattoos. <laughs> oh my God. And I thought about bringing you one of them, but then, then you made a comment about watching the Blu-ray special feature and I was like, oh, you've got them. Nope. Yeah. I opened it up and I was like, Dixon said that there's a thing in here. And I looked uh, and I was like, it's fucking empty. This you got is the, the sti- like Blu-ray DVD steelbook? I got a steelbook. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, and I was just disappointed oh. by it. Now I'm going to have to buy it. must have bought I, it too late. They ran out. I'm going to buy a Cheddar Goblin box on Etsy. I'm sure that they're out there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to put it in my my wall. I'll, I'll gift you a, a Cheddar Goblin tattoo. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'll give you one of those. Nice. You find a good place. I'm gonna for be it. the cheddar goblin for Halloween. <laughs> I'll fucking vomit <laughs> cheddar on everybody. You're just gonna have mac and cheese just on your head. Can't wait as to you get walk kicked out of a party for, for making a <laughs> mess. Bark. What is that? <laughs> it smells terrible. Oh man. But yeah. Um, well, uh, if anybody out there knows if this was shot on digital or some kind of film, if you know some secret we don't, uh, feel free to you know. Yeah. message us get at us with the uh, afterthoughts handles it looks great it looks like it was shot on 16 just like beautiful. It, it looks great yeah yeah um well all of that being said um let's go around and say if we'd recommend it or not ryan you're the person who watched it first this is your first time watching it when we're talking about it. uh would you recommend it yeah, I would recommend it. I agree that because I had to go. Found back one watch weird the enough for Ryan. <laughs> we yeah, did this it, is everybody. Weird enough. Drop the balloons. <laughs> <laughs> I I do think this is one where if you watch it again, you'll appreciate it probably more. I do. Think I it liked it a lot better. more on a second watch. Yeah. Yeah. Just exper- like I, not having to figure out what's going on and just experiencing it for what it is. It's just such a beautiful movie. Yeah. I also feel like this could be a dorm room poster kind of movie. I do mm-hmm, think there's a certain mm-hmm. amount of like not getting it For and sure. just focusing on the like crazy bullshit violence of it. Um, and I, yeah, this is not going to be some people's cup of tea. It's going to be a, a an assault on not Every speed racer sense. level, yep. but an assault on your <laughs> on your senses uh, and understanding. But I think as a filmmaking, it is interesting how all of it all comes together to just set this mood to just really get you in it and set this mood. Um, don't watch it in a plasma during the day. It's probably not going to be a good experience because it gets so dark and goes back and forth between those dark and lights. You yeah, find this one right you want to watch at night. Spot. For sure. Yeah. This is an at night. If you could see it in the theater, that would be awesome. Yeah. Uh, Dixon. Uh, yes. Would highly recommend Mandy. I think it is an incredible film. Like I don't, like I don't have any critiques like it is it's so good for for what it's trying to do this weird trippy mood piece revenge movie it is perfectly made it's it's fucking great you should watch it I'm 100% in agreement with those statements um this is something that I would recommend uh to anybody because it is a hell of an experience and even if they come away from it and they take that dorm room poster thing or they hated it. Uh, it's definitely going to be something they've never seen before. And it's got just a phenomenal cage performance in it. It's just so different. Um, so good. I'm so excited to see what Panos does next. Like, 
Uh, He's only made two movies, and Beyond the Black Rainbow was in 2010, and Mandy was in 2018. It's going to be a while. Um, so <laughs> I, I saw on IMDb he has something cooking, but... Um, you know, both movies that he's made have lost lots of money. So yes, um, they have. I don't yes, know <laughs> how likely it's going to be that he's going to get funding for his next project. I really hope he does because hey, he is super yeah. talented. With Elijah Wood being a producer here, maybe uh, Ethan Hawke will be the producer on the next Panos. Hey, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see the alternate universe cut of this film where Cage is the cult leader. I think that would be fascinating. But I do think that cage was like made the right decision and and wanting to play the the lead and, and to play red rather than the cult leader and the guy who plays jeremiah is great he does a really good job so yeah. um but it would be fascinating to see cage in that role yeah this is the anti-pig for for cage mm -hmm. <laughs> it really it really is like it's a very uh yeah this is the john wick movie that cage did and that like pig makes you keep makes you making you think it's a john wick movie but it's not and keeps no. subverting that yeah amazing um well yeah uh that wraps it up for us here after thoughts uh thanks for joining us on this episode as we talked about mandy i have been your host john garcia with me as always ryan king we are your podcast now <laughs> and michael dixon thanks for putting up with our bullshit Hey there, movie buffs, TV toughs, and all listeners in between. John here from the Afterthoughts Podcast. I just wanted to drop in at the end of this episode and say thanks for listening. If you've got afterthoughts of your own to share, hit us up. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Afterpod, or jump into a conversation on our Discord server. You can find info for this and more at theafterpod.transistor.fm. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode.